Alright, let's turn to the 24th chapter of Genesis. And we want to con continue our series of studies in the life of this great old saint Abraham, although the focus this morning is not on Abraham so much as it is on Isaac and Abraham's uh, steward, Eliezer. Uh, this, this chapter deals with... Uh, with the issue of uh, uh, Isaac and, and his bride, and it's how the steward secured a bride for, uh, for Isaac. I think one of the major problems that Christians have to face, at least it seems to be the one that, that uh, I deal with more in counseling than anything else, is how you know the will of God for your life. Uh, this seems to strike uh, people at a moment, at a time when they have to make critical decisions. Uh, should I change my job? Should I move to another part of the country? Should we buy a new car? Whom shall I marry? Those sorts of uh, very grave and important decisions that we have to make. And uh, knowing the will of God becomes a very practical consideration in times like that. I find that people have two problems. Basically, some people, and even some Christians, have a, a problem with the fact that God has a will for them at all. Uh, I think they have the idea that God brings us into the world, and then he lets us work it out as best we can. And it bothers them that God intervenes at various points in our life, or that he intervenes at all to give some direction to our life, or that he has a will some sovereign will for our life. That's bothersome to a lot of people, and particularly independent types that, that really want to run their own lives. I remember talking to a, a religion professor at uh, Steve Newman's university some years ago who, was, uh, who got very angry at the thought that God had a will for our life, that God even cared what we did. And that bothers some people. But I think for those of us who are, who are Christians and subject to the will of God, the more practical problem is how do you know God's will for your life? How do you discern what's God's very best for us? And that's the sort of thing that we want to talk about this morning from the story of, of Isaac and Rebekah. Now let's begin reading with verse 1 of chapter 24. Now Abraham was old, advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, Please place your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. But you shall go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, Suppose the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Should I take your son back to the land from which you came? Then Abraham said to him, Beware lest you take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, and who spoke to me and who swore to me, saying, To your descendants I will give this land. He will send your angel before you, and you will take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this my oath, only do not take my son back there. So 
So the servant placed his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Now, Abraham was old. He was probably 140, as best I can surmise at this time. His wife, Sarah, was dead. His son, Isaac, who was the seed, the promised seed, the only son, the only legitimate son that he had at this time, was in his 40s, early 40s. And uh, it was necessary now to secure a wife uh, for Isaac. And so he sends the servant, probably Eliezer. The servant's unnamed in this account, but it's almost certainly Eliezer, the steward of his household that he mentions earlier. The irony of this uh, entire account is that Eliezer, according to law and in this time in the ancient Near East, would have been the one who inherited everything that Abram had if he had not had a son. So he is actually running an errand for the son who, who displaced him, which gives us some idea of the, of the genuine servant's heart that this servant had. He was willing to give up his own rights in order to secure the best for, for Isaac. And so Abram sends him off to Aramea, into what today is, is Syria. That's, that was the place from which Abraham 70 years ago had, had, uh, had departed to go to Canaan. And he had received word, we know from chapter 22, that his brother had a large family there and his nephew, Bethuel, was, st- was still living in Aramea and he had a son and daughter. And so it's to this family that he sends, sends the servant. He did not want Isaac to have a bride from the Canaanites because, as we've seen over and over again, that was a culture that was totally corrupt, totally decadent. And so he wants to take a bride from his relatives, not because his relatives were believers. We know from the account of Jacob that Laban was an idolater. They were moon worshipers, most likely. And, uh, and yet they were far better than the Canaanites. And so... The servant is sent back to Aramea, and he takes an oath, a solemn oath, that he will not take Isaac back to Mesopotamia. Even if the bride will not go with him, he's not to take Isaac back there. Now, what, what we need to see is that Abraham clearly understood what God's will was because it had been revealed. The... Uh, the command to go back and find a relative there, find a, a wife from his relatives, and not to take Isaac back to Mesopotamia is based on what we call the Abrahamic covenant. The covenant, the agreement that God had made with Abraham that he would give him the land, and he was not to give that up. So that was a part of God's will uh, about which there was no question. Abraham clearly understood God's will because it had been revealed. Now, what we need to understand is that about 90% of God's will has already been revealed. It's been revealed in Scripture. And that forms the basis for every other decision that we have to make. For instance, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from fornication. Now, that's the will of God, as it has to do with character and and almost all of the will of God as it's revealed in Scripture 
has to do with character rather than direction. So on the basis of Paul's statement in 1 Thessalonians 4, we know that it's contrary to the will of God to commit fornication. It's contrary to the will of God to be adulterous. It's contrary to the will of God to lie or to murder or to steal or any of the things that are clearly stated in Scripture as, uh, as unlawful. It therefore would be uh, contrary to the will of God if you walked into my office and told me that God had called you to be a mafia hitman, a professional killer. That would be contrary to God's will, you see. In other words, God never leads us in any direction that's contrary to what's already revealed in Scripture. And, and I don't care what sort of experience you've had, what sort of vision you've received, if it's contrary to what is already revealed in the Word of God, then that's not God's will for your life. It's just that clear. Now, there are other things that are commanded in Scripture. It always surprises me when I read the Word to come across statements like this. Paul says, don't be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Let him who steals, steal no longer. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by which you were sealed. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Now, see, that is just as much the will of God as thou shalt not commit adultery. We, as Christians, all agree that it's wrong to murder, it's wrong to steal, it's wrong to tell lies, but it's also wrong to be bitter or resentful or crabby or grouchy or to let unwholesome words come out of our mouth, to complain, to not be tender-hearted, to refuse to forgive someone. See, that's all a part of the will of God. And it's in these, you see, what we would call small things of life that the character of God is seen in us. Jesus said of the Pharisees, you tithe dill and mint and cumin, what, what he meant by that is that they, uh, they were so scrupulous in their observance of the law that they tithed 10% of all the dill seeds that they had in their possession. They would measure them, you know, they would count them out, and they would tithe 10% of the dill seeds and 10% of the cumin and whatever that is and, and all of these other things. But he says, you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and loyalty and, and things of that nature. And I really think that's an indictment of us as evangelicals as well because we say, okay, we don't lie, we don't steal, we don't do this and that, the, the things that we call the gross sins, but we need to pay attention to everything else that God has said that's clearly revealed in Scripture, and we need to be kind and forgiving and tender-hearted toward one another and toward our families and our children. Uh, most of you know about Josh. And uh, he's always getting into things. And uh, his grandmother just moved into town. He's, he's our nine-year-old son. And, and yesterday, he went over to grandmother's house on his bike, and he gathered up all the kids in the neighborhood, and they went over to her house, and they gathered up all the boxes 
that uh, her stuff came in. There must be about 20 of these. They're huge. And they brought them all over to our house and put them in our front yard. Wrapping paper, boxes, and they cut them up and they started making fortresses and you wouldn't believe what my front yard looks like. Now long ago, Carolyn and I decided that we had to make a choice between growing children and growing grass. And I remember the day that decision was made. It's when, when Brian made a baseball field right in the middle of our dichondra front lawn. He had a pitcher's mound, and the whole thing was beautiful, right in my dichondra. And uh, that's when I decided, okay, I'm either going to grow grass or kids, but I'm not going to grow both. And so I just bagged the lawn, and I forgot about it. But yesterday I had to fight that battle all over again because I, you know, I, I can't get around very well and I had spent about an hour hopping around on one leg in the front yard picking up junk and throwing it away. And then I come out there an hour later and there are boxes all over the place. And I just let him have it. And you see, I wasn't kind. Now maybe it's wrong to scatter boxes all over my front yard. I don't really think it was in this case, but I thought it was. And you see, that's what the Lord is saying to us. Those are the weightier matters of the law. And I'm really convinced that about 90% of God's will just has to do with, with, with things like that, just being the kind of people that God expects us to be in every circumstance. Now, that's where we begin in this, account, in this account. Abraham knew what God's will was. It had been revealed in Scripture. There's no question about it. He was not to give up the land, and so that formed the basis of everything else that he did throughout the account. Now, the question then is, what, what do we do about those matters that are not revealed clearly in Scripture, the 10% of life about which Scripture is not at all clear? whether we should buy a new car or not, whether we should buy another house or start a business on our own or go overseas into some kind of missionary endeavor. What do we do about those so-called crucial decisions? Well, you know what I've come to believe? I don't think we know what are the crucial decisions in life. We decide that the crucial decisions are who we're going to marry and what vocation we'll go into and whether or not we will change our, our business or our style of life. And I don't think we know what decisions are really crucial. The most important decision you ever make in your life may be which direction you turn someday in your automobile to go to work, whether you turn left or turn right, or what color tie you put on in the morning. We don't know. I remember one time picking up a friend of mine. He was, um, he was an artist. Uh, working in a, as a window dresser in a, in a uh, department store. And he came out the door. We had a lunch appointment, and he came out the door, and it was obvious that he had forgotten because he turned one direction, and I pulled up a little bit further and honked the horn. He saw me. He said, oh, sorry, I forgot. And he got in the car, and I said, where do you want to eat? And he said, well, let's just go up here to the barn. It's just about a block away. He said, I'm kind of in a hurry, and we can grab something to eat up there. And I had in mind another place, but because he was in a hurry, I said, okay, fine. So he jumped in the car, and he was in such a hurry, he didn't buckle the seat belt, and we pulled out of the parking lot, and wham, a moving van hit us, this broadside, went right through a red light, and Bob was killed instantly. And I say the most important decision that young man ever made in his life was where to eat that day. Because had we turned left, 
that truck never would have hit us. For my own part, my decision to zig instead of zag out, on Winst out at Winstead Park put me in a cast for three months, you see. Life's just full of all kinds of decisions like that which, taken over the long haul, are far more crucial than some of these so-called critical decisions that we make. We can't know what the crucial decisions are. It's really conceivable that the color of tie you wear could have an influence on your vocation because maybe someone just arbitrarily decides they don't like the way you match up colors and you therefore couldn't be a good manager and you get shunted off into some other position that has nothing to do with your ability or anything else. It's the color of tie you wore that day. And we don't think anything about it. We just wrap a tie around and go to work, see? Life is just full of decisions like that. How do we know? Well, I think the rest of the chapter tells us. Let's begin with verse 10. I'm not going to read the entire chapter. It's the longest chapter in the book of Genesis, and it's very repetitive. But I would like to read a portion of it. Then the servant took ten camels from the camels of his master and set out with a variety of, of good things of his master's in his hand, and he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. That's the city of Haran up in Syria or in Aramea in those days. And it was the city that uh, had been founded by Abraham's uh, brother some 100 years before. Must have taken him about a month to get there. And he made the camels kneel down in, uh, outside the city by the well of water at the evening time, the time when women go out to draw, draw water. And he prays, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today. Literally, he says, please do it. If you look in the margin, you'll see that's they translate as an alternative, cause it to occur, but it just says, please do it. And show loving kindness to my master Abraham. The word loving kindness throughout the Old Testament is a translation of a word that means be loyal to your covenant. Be faithful to the terms of your covenant with him. Behold, I am standing by the spring, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now may it be that the girl to whom I say, Please let down your jar so that I may drink, and who answers, Drink, and I will water your camels also. May she be the one whom thou hast appointed for thy servant Isaac. And by this I shall know that thou hast shown loving kindness or loyalty to my master. Just praise God. Do it. Then it came about that before he had finished speaking, that behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the, Abra the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, came out with her jar on her shoulder. And notice it's before he finished praying. In other words, God sent that young lady out long before Eliezer ever began to pray. God had her on the way to the spring to meet Eliezer. So God had already done it. He saw to it. And the amazing thing is that she was right out of Abraham's family. Now, the, the servant didn't know this at this point. He just saw that this, this beautiful young lady coming down toward the well with a jar on her, on her head. And the wells in those days were they're quite large. There's one at Gibeah that's probably two-thirds of the, uh, the diameter. is about two-thirds the distance across the auditorium. And there are stairs that go down. So they have to go down to the water level, which is quite low in that part of the country. Verse 16, the girl was very beautiful, a virgin, actually a, a young woman of marriageable age, and a virgin. 
no man had had relations with her. And she went down to the spring, down the circular stairway, and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please let me sip a little water from your jar. And she said, Drink a lot, my lord. And she quickly lowered her jar to her hand, took it off her head, put it on her hand, and gave him the drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran back to the well to draw, and she drew for all of his camels. And, we, and meanwhile, the man was gazing at her in silence, we would say with, with bated breath, to know whether the Lord had made his journey successful or not, because he didn't yet know if she was a relative of Abraham, you see. All he knew is that so far she had fulfilled uh, his request, the request that he made to God. Then it came about when the camels had finished drinking, and I don't, I've never tried to give... Uh, to adequately uh, uh, give water to camels, but ten thirsty camels would mean a lot of trips down to the bottom of that, of that well. And it came about when the camels had finished drinking that the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her, her wrist weighing ten shekels in gold and said, Whose daughter are you? Please tell me. Is there room for us to lodge in your, in your father's house? And she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. In verse 26, the men bowed low and worshipped the Lord. He said, Lord, do it. Get me to the right person at the right time. I don't know how you're going to do it. I don't have the foggiest idea. Here's a sign, but it's up to you. You have to do it because I'll never find this girl in this vast crowd of young ladies coming down to the, to the well. You have to do it. Your responsibility, Lord, to get me to the right place at the right time because I want your will. Verse 27, and he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness, his loyalty, and his truth, his steadfastness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has guided me straight to the house of my master's brother. That's what this expression, in the way, means, because there's a parallel, an exact parallel, to this statement in verse 48. When he tells his story, he says, I bowed low and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who guided me straight to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. No detours. God got him from here to here in the right way. He didn't have to worry about finding the will of God. It was God's responsibility to reveal that will to him and to get him to the right place at the right time. See, the problem really is not knowing the will of God. It's knowing God. It's knowing who God is and what God wants for us. What we observe here is that both Eliezer and Abraham were first obedient to the revealed will of God. They obeyed what they knew to be the will of God, and they relied on God for the rest. They put the issue squarely in God's hands. Do you realize that God wants you to know his will more than you want to know it? You know the only people who miss the will of God are people who don't want it. 
Somehow we think that the will of God is some obscure, very difficult, hard thing to find, some filmy, vaporous thing that's going to pass us by. We'll be looking in the wrong direction, and we'll miss the whole thing and ruin our lives because we didn't see the will of God. Do you realize that God wants you to know his will more than anything else in the world, and he's committed to revealing it to you? And as I said before, the only people who miss it are the people who don't want it. If you want the will of God, you'll find it. I don't know how he'll reveal it. I really have lost confidence in any set scheme, as good as some of them may be. What I'm convinced of, that God will use whatever means are at his disposal, counsel, the wisdom that he gives us from his word, circumstances, doors that open, doors that shut. I don't know how he'll do it, but he'll do it. And when the time comes to make the decision, you'll know, because God's not playing games with you. You ever play this silly little game, mouse trap, when you were a kid? You know, you run down the wrong, wrong route, and trap falls over you, and you're out of the game. And I think sometimes that's, the, that's what Christians think will happen to them. They'll somehow make the wrong decision, and they'll end up over here on the sidelines somewhere, and God will say, Ah, I got you. You thought that you were going to find the will of God, but you didn't. How absurd. That's so contrary to the will of God, to the character of God as we know him. He's never going to lead us astray. He'll get you in the right place at the right time. Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that we're to present our bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God. And the last line of verse 2 says, And you will know what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The key to knowing the will of God is to be willing to subject yourself to anything that God wants for you, anything. I always picture it in my mind as a little dinghy tied up to a wharf someplace, and here's this vast river like the Columbia River, and we're sitting in the, in the little boat, and we just take a, an axe and just chop the rope and cast off, and then it becomes... God's problem to get us to the right place at the right time. If he wants us to eddy around for a while, that's all right. That's his business. If he wants us out in the mainstream, then that's his problem. But I'm going to have confidence in him that I'll be at the right place at the right time. I'll make the right decision. He will not lead me astray, whether it's choosing a new job or buying a new car or whatever. I think the procedure is to get up in the morning and say, God, I want what you want. I don't care what it costs. That's what I want. And just know that through the day, God's going to get you to the right place at the right time. And you, like Jesus, can come to the end of your day or your life and look back and say, I finished the work that God gave me to do today. A lot of things I didn't get done. A lot of things I planned to do that weren't done. And I'm not against planning. We need to plan. But I also know that God is able to, to rearrange our schedule. And we have to give him that right. Paul had in mind going to Rome because he was the apostle to the Gentiles. And the most strategic place was to go to Rome. So he announces that's the direction he's going. He has to go by Jerusalem, check in with the saints there one last time. He goes to Jerusalem, and I'm sure he planned to raise some money and, and go to Rome. He gets captured, thrown on a Roman galley ship, uh, taken off to, uh, for, well, first he goes to Caesarea, and he's in prison there, and then he's put on a Roman ship and taken to Rome. And in Rome, he's under house arrest, and he's chained to Roman soldiers, the picked elite young men of the Roman Empire, the choice young men of that time, and he starts evangelizing these young men, 
And we know from Philippians that the gospel had gone right into the center of the Roman Empire. He says, those that are of Caesar's household greet you. If Paul had gathered all the Christians in the Roman Empire and they had devised a strategy along those lines, they, they never would have thought of that. That was God's plan. Paul just had a scheme of his own. He was following God, moves him around here and there, and finally at Roman expense, he gets him over to Rome and, and in the center of the Roman Empire. It was God's business to get that job done. And that's what God will do for us. You don't need to worry about missing God's best or somehow losing out or being left behind or missing God's will. You won't miss it if you want it. I, I would like to assure you that God's will is not grim. Somehow we get the feeling that uh, in order to be Christian, we have to be miserable. That the ideal Christian, his face would make a great front frontispiece to the book of Lamentations. <laughs> Heard about a pastor who, years ago, when he first started making ice cream, uh, had a bite of ice cream, and he said, it must be of the devil, because nothing that tastes this good could be of God. <laughs> and... Uh, See, we just totally misunderstand the kind of Lord we have. He wants the very best for us. I love Bill Bright's illustration of a little boy who comes home and he says, Dad, I love you and I want to do anything you want to do. And his dad says, Great! I've been waiting all my life for this moment. And he makes him stand in the corner for three hours and he feeds him on spinach and, oh, you know, how far from the character of God. When we say, God, I'll do it your way, I want your will, I'll do whatever you want, then God wants the very best for us. He's committed to it. doesn't mean that life won't be hard. Life is hard. But I think life is hard enough without making it grim. I think God expects us as Christians to be characterized by a fun-loving spirit and a kind of contagious joy. As I told the men at at the retreat, I think God intended men to hunt and fish and rodeo and women to paint and fish and ski and crochet up a storm and everything else that you do and just go for broke. Because I think that's what, that's what God intends out of life. Life is hard, but we don't need to make it hard. And God's will doesn't necessarily have to be hard and grim. I think God wants the very best for us. What we need to do is just put our life in his hands, just cast off. The problem with most of us is we still got the rope, the hauser tied to the wharf because we're afraid to cast off. It's just an air of, it's exciting, I think, to cut loose and just let God put you to his intended purpose, whatever it means. Now I would like to do something this morning. It was a suggestion of the staff since we're talking about such a, a, a difficult issue to just take a moment to answer any questions you might have. Perhaps you have none. Or perhaps you feel awkward about expressing them uh, verbally. If so, just write them on a card and pass them in a few moments, and we'll try to get in touch with you during the week. But I want to take a moment now to see if anyone has any questions about what we've said this morning. And we'll, we want to try to answer those questions if we can. Yeah, uh, Colossians 3.16 says, Let the peace of God literally call the decisions in your heart or rule in your heart. But if you look at the context of that passage, he's not talking about the kind of peace that you might, this is often the way it's, it's presented, that if you feel peaceful about something, then that's the direction you ought to go. But if you look at the context, he's not talking about that, that at all. 
He's talking about peace with God. It's let that peace, the peace that you have with God, settle your heart out. Know that God is for you, not against you. Now, I think God sometimes can rule by giving you a conviction about something, that this is the direction God wants me to go, and I felt that before. But I don't have any confidence in feelings because feelings wax and wane. One moment I feel like doing one thing, and the next moment I feel like doing something else. I just disregard that and just keep moving ahead on the basis of what I know, knowing that at the right time God will work it out in some way so that I'm doing his will, whether I feel peaceful about it or not. Does that help, Dave? All right, let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for your loving care, your tenderness toward us, your patience with us when we uh, so obstinately insist on going our own way and trying to work things out ourselves. We're so grateful that during those times you don't abandon us, you don't turn your back on us, you continue to to work in our life to accomplish your ends, often unknown to us. We thank you for that. We thank you that we don't have to worry about the future. We don't have to resort to astrology and crystal balls and and various occult ways to try to divine the future. and None of those things, Father. We can put ourselves in your hands and know that you're going to work your will out in our lives, in your own way, and in your own time. So give us the courage, Father, to entrust ourselves to you and to let you do it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.